This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, we've assembled an all-star crew of uh, hoppy beer, hoppy IPA brewers. Uh, we're going to talk about cold IPA, and uh, I'm going to dub this our hot takes on cold IPA just because in my typical editor parlance, I have to kind of create that kind of contrast and quippiness to it. Um, joining me for this episode, uh, Sam Tierney, brewing manager of the Firestone Walker Propagator in Venice, California. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam. I think this is number three. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Stoked to be here. Uh, Firestone has uh, taken this cold IPA framework, turned it into national brands, and uh, done it in uh, probably the, the largest kind of commercial way that we've seen out there. So interesting to, uh, you know, I'm very curious to get your take on it. Uh, also joining me, the the guy that coined the term cold IPA and first made a Kevin Davey co-founder of Cold.Beer, co-owner of Heater Allen in McMinnville, Oregon, former brewmaster of Wayfinder, uh, under which he developed the very first cold IPA. Kevin Davey, welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm always excited to be here. I should also note that uh, uh, earlier this year, we got out to McVinville and filmed a video class on cold IPA with Kevin. So if you want Kevin's full unvarnished uh, take on brewing cold IPA and you were an all access subscriber to craft beer and brewing look forward to that class sometime in the next few weeks here in the month of December uh, and also joining me from Chicago Jude LaRose co-founder of Hot Butcher for the World who our readers recently voted the number one small regional brewery of the year in 2023 that's wild Jude that's wild it's totally wild great to be back uh, I think uh We've been listening to the podcast for five years since, uh, yeah, way back 2018. I think it was a late night in Minneapolis. We did our first one. So I feel like I'm home. I'm always listening to you in my car. So it's good to be on here. It's great to be on here. And great to be on with all you guys, too, talking about one of my favorite topics. Um, like I said, we're going to talk about cold IPA, you know, where, where it is now, a um, couple years into this whole cold IPA movement, uh, what it means, how it's evolved, and uh, uh, whether it's relevant. But really, you know, we're going to leave the conceptual stuff towards the end and start talking about how you all have uh, built, extended, and are using this kind of framework of cold IPA to accomplish some of the technical things and the creative things that are possible um, within this world of IPA brewing. Before we do that, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000-plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at 5 o'clock, nor do they. G&D uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24-7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need providing you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. Located in Armstrong, BC, Gambrinus Malting combines European-influenced malting practices with the finest barley, wheat, and rye to produce some of the finest Canadian malts available. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash to explore their full line of traditionally crafted malts and infuse your next brew 
with the character of the Okanagan Valley and Monashi Range. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Um, maybe we'll kick off the discussion here uh, with a kind of broad, you know, and general question. Um, you know, and maybe I'll start with Sam because Kevin, as you have admitted, you're not currently brewing cold IPAs, uh, or or have you been able to start brewing ales again? I know you're you're opening up a new cellar there, Gold Dot and uh, Heater Allen, um, you know, in order to kind of create the capacity to make some of those hoppy beers. But are, are you doing it yet? Our our first one came out is, is we're literally setting the kegs out today. So Today. yeah, three weeks ago we brewed one. <laughs> so yeah, it's exciting. Uh, we've we've brewed into the new cellars um, last week and yesterday, and then we're going to go back at it tomorrow. Well, in that case, let's talk about it. Uh, you know, the original cold IPA that was called Relapse and then rebranded as original cold IPA um, that you created at Wayfinder you know, kind of set uh, the you know initial idea afloat in the world. Um, as you approach cold IPA now, um, how has it changed for you? Um, it, you know, I, I frankly have always thought of it as just being a really great canvas for hops. And that was kind of what we set out to do. Um, I found that a lot of other people have made cold IPAs in a different way, like to where some of them are more approaching that west coast pills kind of like timbo situation and i found those to be lovely and i found some of most of most people are not making them in this as strikingly bitter as the original like relapse one which was more of like a uh, homage to like southern california and like ballast point and firestone and all that stuff where it was actually had like some bitterness to it which i that's the kind of beer that i really like you know and so like i wanted to bring that back because we were in this point where it was like all all beers started being hazy and juicy and low bitterness and i knew that was a trend and i'm like well there's plenty of people that haven't really signed up for the trend even though it's you know currently making waves in our in our whole thing so i'll try to make something just for that so i guess what i'm trying to say is that there's been a lot of experimentation with bitterness in in that regard and also with gravity uh, which has been which has been a good change but i mean honestly most of the most of the exciting part is just using hops in a different way and trying to um see what they can do on a more naked canvas where there isn't a bunch of ester and a, and a bunch of other types of like oats and other types of things getting in the way of the total slaver of the hops sure jude you all brew those uh, sweet and hazy beers also and uh, how, do, how do you balance those two things and as you're thinking about cold ipa jude um today you know what is it about uh, the idea of cold ipa that uh, that resonates with you as a brewer whether it, it's a, a clear beer or whether it's a hazy beer, um, hop butcher has always been about the hops. Um, so I think like our, our very first beer in 2015 was like a, uh, was like an Australian hot brown ale. Um, we did a, our third beer was a Nelson Sauvignon hop Saison. So there was always some focus on hops. And when we were developing our palate, um, here in Chicago, I mean, we had Goose Island and we're only about 45 minutes away from three Floyds. Um, so they were one of our favorite breweries kind of coming up. Half Acre was one of our favorite breweries coming up. So we are always drinking their pale ales. Really, I mean, we cut our teeth on kind of clear 2013, 14 IPA. Um, so, you know, 
uh, it's it's always been a love. So it's not different for us to brew a non-hazy beer. And uh, the biggest thing, I, I mean, I've got a story for it, is during our first hop selection, we flew into Portland and then we drove to Yakima and back. Um, but months prior to that, we were on this big Italian-style pills kick and we had never tried one. Um, so I had emailed into Wayfinder's info box and Kevin replied. And Kevin said, hey, you can give me a phone call. So I was at my kitchen table and Kevin walked me through, um, you know, his approach to Italian style pills. Um, so months later, when we were finally at Wayfinder, we said, we have to stop in. I wanted to see if, I think it was like Terrifica or Horrifica. I wanted to see if that was on tap. Um, it wasn't, but uh, Relapse was on tap. And we just started asking a bunch of questions. And even our head brewer, Justin Miller, when we got down to it, and they're like, it's lager yeast, even him for a quick second was like, oh, that's not a, you know, that's not an IPA or whatever. He Even he did it for a quick second. Um, but I'll never forget the description was, I think, something like more West Coast than West Coast. And this abstract idea, immediate, I mean, we immediately got it. And to me, it was the most crystalline, crystalline expression pop expression you could possibly have. And when we went there, I mean, the, the whole trip was magical, but we fell in love with the beer and then we came home and we told everybody in our little brewing circle about it. And we said, we got to brew one of these. So there's a lot of romance behind it, but um, it also felt like we had found something that no one knew about yet. And uh, we just wanted to kind of give it a go. And again, we thought it was so cool because the description was great. And, uh, and you know, the most packed in frozen treatment and canvas for hops in the world, like who would want to crush so many of those. So that's been, you know, our approach to is, is we can brew, you know, West coast IPA that uses Chico yeast and ferments at 68 and kind of has this, maybe this soft fuzz of extra character, but when we really want to get super duper tight and frozen and crystalline, crystalline, um, you know, our go-to is cold IPA. We've been fighting that fight ever since. Interesting, interesting. Sam, for you guys in Firestone Walker, uh, you know, take, what is uh, the cold IPA canvas uh, offer to you all? Well, yeah, for us, I, I think the motivation goes back a long time and it kind of weaves in and out through like West Coast pills and hoppy lagers and, and kind of mentally getting to the place where we kind of, realize that this is what we wanted to be doing. Um, you know, and I have to credit, you know, conversations with Kevin over a couple of years and asking a lot of questions for, I think, getting me in the right headspace, um, for us to really go for it. Um, but yeah, it's, and you we know, should in, acknowledge uh, that Kevin is also a former Firestone Walker also at, at an earlier point in his career. Yeah. Me yeah, and, and Sam and, were on the uh, overnight shift together. It was awesome. I remember many times driving to Atascadero to get in and out for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that was um, that I'll was a great era. That very early in my career, um, I know Kevin started brewing a bit earlier than I did. Um, but yeah, um, good times, very formative. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, you know, so Union Jack, you know, was our flagship West Coast IPA that we brewed. Um, I think about it's seventeen years now. I want to say it was too, late 2006 and you know we have this english yeast that's um estery it's expressive and you know that was the defining character of our ipa game for many many years 
And so we come at it from a slightly different perspective, I think, than a lot of brewers that were used to using, um, you know, a Cali El Chico type yeast. And, you know, we were always like, you know, okay, can we get a, a cleaner, you know, more pure hop expression? And so that led us into pursuing hoppy lagers. But the formula for that hadn't been quite perfected yet. We never felt 100% like this was something we could go all in on. And so there was a few seasonal releases, you know, they tend to be lower gravity. We did some IPLs, um, you know, so we, we kept playing around with it. But then, yeah, it wasn't until, um, you know, I, I remember, I, I think, Kevin, when was that? Was it 2019 summer I visited and you had uh, relapse for original cold IPA. And I remember you gave me a can and, you know, I had just taken over the Propagator Brewery and was doing a lot of small batch stuff, just coming up with new recipes at the time and trying to develop new things here. And I remember thinking, oh, this is like this, just it's cold, it's crisp, it's light, and yet it's super hop forward. And it was expressing um, hops in a way that, yeah, I hadn't really experienced in an IPL. It, it felt fundamentally different for me. Um, even, you know, even if you can argue on paper, you know, there's a lot of similarities there, um, you know, you had done something different. So that kind of flipped a switch where, you know, I wanted to pursue that, but I, I guess I didn't feel completely comfortable with the, exactly how we were going to do it. And so it took us a, a little bit. Um, and then we'd been wanting to pursue this, um, you know, using lager yeast in a hoppy beer, like I said, for a while. And so when the idea came to do a new year round IPA, which became Hopnosis for us, which is now, you know, one of our full release beers. Um, yeah, we knew we had to kind of approach it slightly differently. So we pulled in some of the stuff, you know, conversations with Kevin, um, you know, our friends over at Highland Park here in LA, um, do a lot of, uh, hoppy beer with lager yeast as well. And, you know, they take a little bit of a different approach. Um, but we kind of, you know, pulled all that together and that's the beer that became, uh, Hopnosis for us. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's similar to the, you know, beers Kevin makes in some ways, but also a little bit distinct. Um, and I think, you know, like Kevin already said, you know, everyone kind of comes up with their own unique approach to this that works for them in their brewery. Um, you know, and, and we all have a slightly different way of thinking about it, but, um, but fundamentally we're all looking for that same thing, that super clean hop expression, the, the clean fermentation character, and, you know, hopefully the stability too. And I think for us, the stability was a big driving factor, whether it's, you know, controlling fan, whether it's sulfur content from the fermentation. That's, yeah, I think it, it's it's interesting because it's like when you say like on paper, it's a lot like you can make the argument that it's IPL. It, I think it's interesting because it's kind of like one of these things that is it's like a developing style. And so you have people that it, whether it fits exactly into what I was thinking of as cold IPA, whether it has the adjunct load, like I know that uh, Hopnosis might not have the adjunct load that I think is indicative in the style, but I still think it fits because you're kind of getting to the same finish line whether you want it or not. Right. And, um, what I think is, um, interesting is that as the style progresses, even if there is going to be differences, like people still are going to want to call it cold IPA because, um, the pie in the sky of what that beer is, is not going to change. People are going to want something that is clear, crisp, expressive of hops, expressive of new hops in a way that IPL, IPL never really achieved. And I, I, I feel bad for that because I know that there's a lot of um, great brewers that have introduced IPL. And I specifically say this to uh, brewers near to my heart, which are lager brewers like Annegren and Jack's Abbey and people that make IPL and are behind IPL. And I feel like they're they're probably the ones that I feel the worst when they're upset about cold IPA because I'm like, these are my guys. These are the lager guys, you know? 
And uh, I don't want them mad at me, but uh, I think that maybe it was my tenure at Firestone. I have like um, an IPA streak on, on in me that you know the other lager brewers just don't really have. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I do. Maybe I don't. I just wanted to be made them just more aggressive, more punch in your face, and just different. And um, I think that that I think that's the driving force in cold IPA is that I think it, it is able to stand out as being its own thing i am sorry i'm going on a total tangent but um ipl is very close to cold ipa but you know steam beer is really close to american amber lager what's what's i what's the difference it's the people brewing it it's the what they're trying to achieve with what they're making and it's what they want to call it kevin i think you're i think you're spot on i think that like the if i remember correctly the the kind of like your what you wanted to do is there was a lot of hazy ipa out and you kind of wanted to, you know, kind of take the piss out of it a little bit. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but then you said like, let's kind of, you know, build this like a malt liquor and let's also load it up with hops. And I think that when we saddled up to the bar, we had it, um, it didn't feel like a gimmick. It landed like IPA. And yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of like IPLs, um, you know, they, they, they had a, t- a different profile and, and maybe they were a little clunky. I think that, you know, one of the first IPLs, I ever had was like a, a Mickler, uh half acre collab called Guest Lager that they released out of their original location. It was Hop with Nelson Sauvin. And looking back on on that, that to me, if I went back, I feel that would taste like cold IPA. Like that beer always made sense. Um, but, you know, and, and when we talk about, there's like two things. One, when we talk about innovation or we talk about what's like the next big thing and, and you take a, a look at what easy IPA, you know, what it's, what it, its place in the brewing world or what it did and how it took everything by storm and we wonder where it's coming from next. Kind of the the process changes and in, in, in cold IP definitely has a place. There is a profile of those beers that's it's not West Coast Pilsner, it's not Italian style pills, it's not Hoppy Lager. I mean, you know it when you taste it. Um, so I think it's kick-ass and, and what I think it's done and how we look at other beers and how we approach other beers. I mean, I think uh, I think it is things huge. I think there's a lot to be said here too for the the power of branding, and I think we often throw that, uh, you know, think of that as this kind of skeezy thing. But if you look at the history of beer, man, you know, through throughout the last 150 years of the industrial world of beer, being able to sell that beer is pretty important, and uh, having great terms that actually sell that, you know, you look at the evolution of the words like stout and porter, what they mean, and what those beers are that are sold under those things. Those things changed over 30, 40 years. You know, as customers' tastes changed, the idea of what pale lager is is very different, uh, you know, depending on where you are. Um, but the idea of these things and the idea of uh, a name for something being able to sell it is important. And let's just be honest, like cold IPA sounds way aw- more awesome than India Pale Lager. India Pale Lager is also a kind of hacked together term, um, a mashup of some things that doesn't have a historical precedent, nor does cold IPA in that sense. But, uh, you know, um, what would you order if you saw it on a menu? I just see cold IPA and think, hey, that's great. Um, that's my soapbox, uh, you know, on, on that whole thing, but let's, I want to talk about, um, you know, what some of those core tenants are, like you say, Kevin, um, adjunct load fits into this longevity fits into it, Sam, you know, hop expression and that kind of crystalline character, or some of the core tenants. Um, I want to kind of define it, what it looks like now in terms of some of the kind of key recipe points, not thinking about it in just a pure like style guide dogmatism, because I think that, uh, you know, we all agree that it has to be bigger than that and, uh, putting out very distinct 
rules is kind of antithetical to the idea of creativity and brewing and seeing how brewers take and respond to these things. So before we do that, Pro Brew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Also, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. And don't miss keynote speaker Rob Todd from Allagash Brewing Company at the 2024 California Craft Beer Summit in Sacramento, March 12th through 14th. The summit is a can't-miss event, two days of educational sessions, a huge interactive expo floor, beer and food tastings, and networking with industry leaders. There's something for everyone. Buy tickets today and receive the lowest prices. Early bird registration on sale now through December 22nd at CA craftbeersummit.com well let's uh, let's talk about what cold ipa is now in technical terms are there some kind of key you know uh flagpoles you know for for the style of the broader style of cold ipa the things that what makes a cold ipa a cold ipa um as all three of you see it so you know kevin and i had a conversation about uh italian south pills you know we didn't have it about cold ipa so when we came home, um, we put it together the way that we, we thought it might be put together before any of like the literature is out or, or, you know, Kevin fought the good fight for like a good year. I like at every podcast talking about cold IPA and it was sick too. They even just put it on your web on the website and said, this is how you do it. But we came home and we still brew it the same way. Um, you know, we started with Wireman extra premium Pilsner malt, super duper pale malt. Um, at around like uh, 70 to 75%, something in that range. And then because we wanted that to be really bare, but we wanted a a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of malt complexity, I think we did about, we landed on like 10% Munich, just to add maybe like a biscuit character to it, maybe like a touch of color. Um, We use acidulated and and terraform or chit and everything that we do at about 5%. Um, and then I think maybe another 5% of like breeze white wheat just for, you know, some body and maybe a little bit of that, that snap, but also sweetness. And I think also we've always been in love with white wheat since like, you know, the Surly Three Floyds, Maine, when those kind of pale ales and IPAs that felt like they all had white wheat and them or red wheat. Um, and then, you know, we weren't 3470, we are Augustiner. And I think that like Kevin would, you know, say like if if the standard cold ipa might be fermented at like 65 we were still kind of treating it like a lager so i think we think we we still do we fermented it like 52 and raised that up to like 56 for a rest and then you know the very first time um we spun all of our beers but that first time uh when we had you know we had dry hopped and we had kept it uh, we had this like eggy sulfur that we could not shake that was kind of distracting. So I think since then we've just dry hopped and then let it go a couple of days, let that blow off and cap it. Um, 
So we're excited because we've never actually brewed it. If we call it true to style, we've never brewed it true to style, but we've kind of just stuck with that and felt that that was kind of like the hot for approach to cold IPA. And we just have to continue to, to refine it. That's interesting. I'm, I'm interested that you dry hop so cold because I mean, we, we started, especially with Italian Pilsner, um, it was kind of like, well, we're going to dry hop this beer, but I wanted to reuse the yeast. And so I know like optimum dry hopping for me would be just at the tail end of fermentation before harvest, before it's really cold. And because uh, we harvested, you know, we historically we would harvest cold. We would chill it down to around the, the 35 Fahrenheit and um, harvest at 35 and then get it down to zero. Um, so I'm sorry, 32. So for that one, we would like chill it down to like uh, like 45 and then we would dry hop it and croissant it for the Italian Pilsner. And I just always felt like it worked with very low amounts of European hop at that temp and at that at that level. But when we tried to do it with cold IPA, when we're like, you know, using Citra and um, Simcoe and Centennial and Chinook and all these other hops, it, 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 it did not, <laughs> the flavor, the, the dry hop flavor sucked at 45 degrees. We needed to get that warm. And so we ended up just being like, well, we're never going to harvest from an IPA anyway. We have more longer yeast than we need. So um, we ended up just dumping as much yeast as we could, let it finish out completely. And then we would dry hop it at 65. And I felt like we got more expression out of um, some of the hops that we were using at that higher temp. And and a lot of that's anecdotal. You know, honestly, like we don't, like at Wayfinder and now at Peter Allen and Gold Dot, we don't make a lot of IPAs. So it's usually me bugging Ben Edmonds at, Breakside or um, or Sam if Fire's touch just texting my friends or uh, Chris at Varietal being like people that make a lot of hobby beer like hey what have you found about this hey would like when you dry hop cold what does that do blah 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 because like I don't really have a lot of I don't have a lot of darts to throw at the wall here you know what I mean I have to kind of uh, place my bets and just go with it it'd be really fun if we were like the Wayfinder looks like it's a pub. But it was like pretty much a production brewery when, you know, we had to pump out a lot of beer. You know, we were constantly pumping out a lot of beer. So I didn't really have a lot of chances at anything. And I'm curious about how you guys feel about dry hopping cold. So, you know, uh, it's kind of you don't know what you don't know. So, again, going into it, we had uh, had friends that dry hop cold and we've never done it ourselves. And, and we heard, you know, for some people it turned out well. For some people, I don't know if they said they got more grassy flavors. The first beer that we did... I think it was like an Amarillo, Centennial, um, Simcoe. And then we were thinking we had to tether it some way back to lager beer. So we dry hopped with a little bit of Super Sotzer. Um, So if we typically like religiously dry hop at 68 and then, you know, for our hazy beers, we we started dry hopping at like 70 or 72. Again, this was 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 us having a reason to try something different and, and tasting beers or just listening to our friends talk about what it was like at that it, what it was like what the character the dry half character was like at colder temperatures we just thought you know let's roll the dice and, and see what it's like and i don't know i mean we were probably at 3.6 pounds per barrel then we've increased the dry off to four um we're still i think we're still wrapping our heads around it um but the way it netted out it it seemed even at that cold temperatures that we are getting some of the the elements that we wanted for those apps but again still it's still things that we're wrapping our our head around and again i can't wait to ferment at 65 raise it and dry half warmer and see what these beers taste like sam for you guys uh what are some of the the parameters that you hold to in this kind of uh, cold ipa world as far as dry hopping goes you know since we're we're on that right now um we do dry hop warmer 
And, you know, that, so we're fermenting um, around 59 and, um, and cooling it a little bit. It's like, you know, kind of mid 50s, let it come up to about 59. And then for a diastole rest, uh, we're letting it come up to about 65. And then, uh, then we'll dry hop there. Uh, we used to do a mid-firm dry hop when we first started doing hopnosis. And, um, and that was, we were, you know, really getting to know um, cryo mosaic and we liked it in that utilization. Like, you know, I had kind of got on this kick actually of doing like a start of fermentation or kind of almost like a dip hop thing with cryo hops. And we had made some beers we really liked with that. Um, we ended up moving that to a mid-firm um, thinking that, you know, there might be an interesting interaction you know, with the lager yeast and uh, especially something that's a little more pungent dank like mosaic. Um, we were developing that and, um, you know, it, it kind of turned out that when we moved it later, we kind of liked it, you know, just putting it all into the end anyway. And that we, you know, so mid firm's interesting. We've done a lot of experiments with dry hop timing and, um, it almost seems like sometimes, you know, mid firm, there are advantages depending on how you want to utilize the hops. But in this application, we ended up not feeling like it was the best way to do it. Um, but we still do for, uh, actually double hopnosis. Um, which is our kind of, you know, double cold, um, even bigger, even badder, um, you know, with some sugar in there. So, uh, to lean it out, but, um, so yeah, so we're dry hopping warmer, um, we'll, what we'll is, dump yeast. We what, don't harvest. What are the difference? Like, you know, you say, you know, that mid fermentation, uh, you know, from a sensory perspective, how would you define some of the difference between that and now, you know, this, uh, uh, now at the tail end, uh, you know, process that you use? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, we cap our tanks at the, the end of fermentation dry hop. We're not leaving them open. So part of that was being a little bit worried about sulfur. And, you know, especially, you know, this is something also that you have to think about, you know, tank geometry, tank size, hydrostatic pressure. So larger fermenters, you know, are going to retain more sulfur compounds because, uh, you know, most of the the way you're getting rid of sulfur um, is through mechanical action. It's being scrubbed out with CO2 during fermentation. So, you know, when you're capping that tank, you're you're arresting that process. And, you know, we were worried that the beers were coming out a little too sulfury. And, you know, we were always chasing this kind of like just sub threshold or about threshold sulfur character, you know, and we're always looking for sulfitic, you know, never uh, hydrogen sulfide, you know, you want all that out um, early in fermentation. But, you know, that little light struck match character that, you know, we use 3470. And I think that yeast has a perfect amount of that for when we brew more traditional lagers. It's awesome. It's like, it's just enough to add that perfect you know, Christmas to the flavor profile, um, add some, you know, flavor stability over time as it mellows out. But, uh, in IPA, if you have too much of it, I think it starts to have negative interactions with the hops, especially depending on hop varieties, you know, more, uh, sulfur containing hop varieties that are, you know, can lean on the kind of OG dank, you know, allium type stuff. And so, yeah, especially with mosaic can lean on that. And so depending on the lot selection, you know, and that, so that's another thing you could go into, you know, do you want to select, oh, toward more fruity hops, prettier hops, less dank hops for these, you know, kind of fermentations because you're going to get that sulfur character. Um, so anyway, so the mid-firm, the initial motivation there was, you know, we want to blow off some more of that. So the earlier you get it in, the more you're going to blow off. The beer's still fermenting out. Um, and then the later dry hop, we're then bunging the tank and it's, you know, it's usually creeps a bit, but, you know, we're not getting excessive hop creep. Um, but, you know, you're getting some natural carbonation at that point you know, and you're keeping in whatever's there. So we want to be careful there. But, um, but it turned out that, um, you know, with the hops you're getting, and maybe it was moving over, you know, once we got onto some selected mosaic, um, you know, in the next year uh, versus the first stuff we were using, it just came out better. And we liked it that way. One of the things when you talk about that scrubbing um, action, 
especially at smaller fermenters, one of the things that we always focused on, whether it was at Chuck and I or at um, Gordon Beer Show, or, well, I don't know if anybody at Gordon Beer felt this way, but um, at Wayfinder too was between a 15 barrel, 20 barrel, or a 40 barrel fermenter or a 30 barrel fermenter is actually plumbing the glycol to where you can shut off the cone jacket. So during fermentation, actually keeping the cone jacket off, uh, allowing the fermentation to act naturally, the warmer beer will go to the top. The, the The thermal well is going to be right between the jackets on the hip of the cone almost always, and it should be. Um, so as it cools, that cold beer will go down in the tank and the warmer beer will come up from the cone and you'll get more of that scrubbing action in a lager fermentation anyway. Just from doing that, you're going to get more movement inside the tank. Um, and I think that there's some, I think that there's some definite benefit for that, especially for lager brewers that are making beer that is high in SO2 and trying to make sure that or SO2 or H2S or any of these things, you're trying to actually get a lot of that out of there because it's, it's kind of like, you know, with lager brewing, it's always, you're, you're playing a, a balancing act between pitching too much or pitching too little, aerating too much, aerating too little. Uh, fermenting too warm, fermenting too cold, and all of those things are at play at the same time. And, and incorporating tank geometry is another wonderful way of doing that. And Firestone, you know, obviously the very, very large and tall tanks, and the, the hydrostatic pressure is real. And I, it fascinated me going to Firestone and seeing a British ale yeast perform in an 800 barrel tank. I was just like, how is this? How is this happening? And it performed wonderfully. You know, um, I think that there was always uh, VDK is not VDK problems with the beers, but a lot of work extensively with the GC and to making sure that those beers cleaned up in an appropriate amount of time. Uh, as compared to Chico, it's just, I, don't, I think it, I think that the Firestone yeast maybe took a little bit longer. Sam would be able to speak about it a little bit more than I could. But a lot of that has to do with tank geometry. And, you know, you think about a British yeast and it's born and bred to be fermented in, you know, square tanks and then pumped over during fermentation and aerated during fermentation and absolutely like no, no pressure on it and to for us craft brewers to like take it and morph it and to make it operate in such a german style um ccv it's kind of amazing um so different ways of doing it i you know i think that um turning off the cone is really important we would also do the inverse of that when we would go into lagering we would actually turn off the top jacket open up the cone get the yeast out and get it down to like negative one. So you're actually adding all the cooling to the bottom and all the cold beer will go to the top and the warm beer will go to the bottom. And, and you're not stressing the yeast as much. The yeast that does flock better early, you're not just, I mean, it's going to insulate the cooling anyway. So that energy is not really going to go through the yeast very comfortably because there's just like a thick case of yeast there, but it is going to freeze the crap out of the ones right next to the stainless jacket. So you're going to have a little bit more uh, vitality issues and viability issues. Since we're talking about dry hopping, uh, you know, and you you did bring this up, um, you know, how do you all select hops for these? Um, obviously, you're talking about uh, uh, you know contracts for breweries that need to with, with hop varieties that need to uh, span pati- uh, particular styles, and uh, and yet uh, you know are there some specific characters that you're looking for and some specific hops that you lean on as you're thinking about dry hopping, particularly um, within this cold IPA context. Um, I think that cold IPA offers. Uh, kind of like the the most options um, when it comes to what your dry hop selection would be. I think like when it comes to like West Coast Pills, or and maybe this is me being closed-minded, but I feel like West Coast Pills is like really just like Mosaic, Citra, Simcoe, and, and hops that kind of revolve around that. Maybe Equinot 
but it's got this like dank diesel caddy fruity profile it's some like italian style pills it's got all the continental hops german you know german hops um anything kind of grown in that region that would give you kind of like lemon and then herb and dill or whatever that profile is it would remind you of you know uh hops pilsner but when it comes to cold ipa i feel it's a blank canvas um so i feel like you know vast possibilities whatever the profile you're looking for our first one was Amarillo, Centennial, Simcoe with a little Super Satsar. Since then, I don't think we ever went to like a Continental Hop, but we've done a Citra Vic Secret. We've done a, a Simcoe Sabro. Um, so really, I think it's it's it, it should remind you of West Coast IPA. I think a lot of the new and emerging hops are kind of defining what that means right now for West Coast IPA. So I really, I think the the possibilities are endless. And again, whether it's Sabro, 586, um, you can use Galaxy, you can use Nick Secret, or just you can use Nellis. I feel like you can use anything. Yeah, basic idea of West Coast IPA itself has also been changing over the last few years uh, in curious ways and, uh, you know, and, and following a lot of different tangents. Kevin, uh, you know, from, from your standpoint, what do you, you know, what are some of those core hops that you lean on and, uh, you know, and why, you know, how do you, you know, choose those hops for, for dry hop and cold IPA? Well, I mean, I mean, because I'm a lager brewer, I'm, I'm always a traditionalist. And so Centennial, Cascade, Chinook, those are those three are in a lot of it. <laughs> I, I, I love those hops. And it's, I think that also when I was designing Relapse, um, I found those kind of IPAs just completely went away. And, I, and I'm like, I, I, I love all of what Mosaic has done for the industry and what Citra has done to, for the industry. And it's been able to be, it's like every band gets to have Slash as their lead guitarist. It's like, yeah, yes, there's a great solo here. You know, I don't know. Like, but there is just some, there's something great about just that classic sound, that thing that, you know, you go order a pine IPA and it has like that pine and citrus, that real balanced, nice, clean bitterness um, that isn't like the, the heavy fruit the heavy um, juice, tropical mandarin, tangerine, pineapple, um, smorgasbord. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of, when I design hoppy beers, I, I'm always trying to say like, well, I want a little bit from each bucket, you know, and maybe I'll lean on one bucket more. And if the bucket is pine, another bucket's tropical, another bucket is maybe diesel to add a flavor there. So I'm just kind of just shifting as uh, shifting the spider graph and saying, well, what, what is this cold? Is this cold idea going to be more classic? Is this cold idea going to be more, um, new school West coast where it's focusing on, uh, Mosey symptom, uh, Citra or, I mean, I'm frankly just so bored of those beers right now. Like, um, our local bottle shop, we go there more often than we should. And, um, we, we mainly drink lager beers. Um, but I'm always trying everybody, you know, um, Becky does a great job at the bitter muck bringing in these, uh, all the great IPAs from the Northwest. And I'm always trying everybody's cans because I always want to see what the next, you know, op profile is. And yeah, and when it's just Citra Mosaic Simcoe, I'm just, it's just got that generic hop flavor to me now. It used to be so exciting. And now I feel like I've danced with the same partner at square dance too many times and I'm sick of it. So I, I guess maybe that's also me and that's not the customer, but I'm trying to come up with something else that isn't just that flavor profile. Yeah, totally. You know, when it comes to some of the first hop experiences, I think any of us ever had like that, that first experience with Citra, that first experience of mosaic, 
I I think we're all trying to uh, find that again uh, with something that's coming out. And it's I think it's cool when you can kind of play the the classics, but it's great when you land on something that you've never smelled before and, and you never tasted before. And you know, I think that's what cold IPA does, did, and still does. Anytime a new hop would come into our brewery, you know, whether it was Savro, we'd always pair it with Citra and, or, or Mosaic and see what the Savro was doing. Or Rewaka would come in and we'd do it again. And what we, the approach that we've kind of started to take is some of the beers that, that we already do that are goats for us or are in our, you know, our staples for us, we tried to kind of cold IPA those. So if this is how it is on a West Coast beer of ours or a hazy beer of ours, What's it like in a in a you know in a cold IPA profile and see kind of how all those types of things change? That's funny because Centennial for me is always my second fiddle. Like if I want to know what a beer like a hop is, I'm going to use that and some Centennial. Like let's see what let's see, but maybe that's just like blank slate for me is just a that's just a little bit of too hard. you know, like put on something on top of too hard and taste something. I don't know. About four weeks ago, I had a two-hearted at the general store at Bell's. We did like a little weekend trip in that area, and uh, it was the brightest, most insane two-hearted I I had in so long. And we get it here fresh, um, but it was uh, it was so good. What kind of centennial are you able to play with? What's the the profile like? Um, you, you I've been selecting more like um, I don't think anybody um would say like grape. I don't I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of like this Centennial has like this, this interesting, like is more fruit forward. It's more juice forward. Um, uh, I, I don't know it, but it doesn't come across that way when I'm using it. I almost, I, I use a lot of Centennial hot side. Um, so it doesn't really come across that way. I, when it rubs, I, I'm one of the firm believers that I, when I'm doing a selection, I want it to smell nice and I don't want it to smell like smoke and I don't want it to smell like garlic and diesel or grass but I just want it to smell like that hop. And I don't think that just because it smells like a certain thing, it's going to come out in the beer exactly the way that I'm rubbing it. And uh, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I should be cooling my whirlpool more often and dry hopping, you know, right before it goes into somebody's glass. I don't know. I'm a little bit more of a traditional. So I'm just, I'm adding, I'm boiling the hops. I'm a weird guy. I'm stuck in my ways. I I'll, I'll, I'm swear I, I swear I'll get it. I'll, I'll get it. But I'm, I'm still, I don't know. Sam, as you guys think about dry hopping in, in the cold IPA space, you have all, you know, as many different hops at your fingertips as you possibly want. Uh, and uh, you've got a, a phenomenal team that, uh, you know, works directly with growers and selects, uh, you know, so some of the best in the business. How, how do you all go about, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, hops uh, that, you know, that work well within this dry hopping space and cold IPA? taking a pretty modern approach for the most part with everything we've done. And I think that the, if there's one theme I can tease out with some of the different experiments we've done that, and then Hopnosis kind of exemplifies that is this combination of getting some New Zealand character in with some new school American character and kind of letting that all, you know, come together in a, in a way that gives us like a little bit of a, you know, traditional West coast flair, but leading into some, you know, really exciting, fruitiness, you know, leaning on more thiol heavy hops, um, you know, and, and I think that it's cool that, you know, especially those like really kind of, um, you know, ephemeral like characters that you can get out of stuff. Like, you know, I was looking, so, you know, we use a little Nelson Nectron and Rwaka and Hopnosis and, you know, 
within those hops, yeah, we're always talking about that, you know, that just like really expressive tropical kind of character that you can get that, you know, you're getting some of these small amounts of thiol compounds. You know, it's it's not what you're going to get, obviously, if you're using thialized yeast. But uh, I think within the cleaner fermentation, those compounds pop more. And it's it's more of a contrast that lets you display that character more fully. And so, yeah, I think New Zealand varieties especially work really great with lager yeast. I love making lagers with uh, New Zealand varieties. And so for us, yeah, you know, blending that in with some, you know, we got mosaic in there. But we hardly ever put mosaic and citra together, actually. It's usually just like one or the other. So we actually, so one of our wider releases this year was Another Life. And that was one of our kind of seasonal IPAs that kind of went through the summer. Um, and, you know, that was more like, you know, I wanted to bring more adjunct into it. And so, um, you know, we were using rice in that. And so it was really just for me, like I was leaning into that side, you know, that um, I know Kevin's really into pushing it in that direction. And that's, you know, like where cold IPA comes from. And so for me, it was like really leaning into that and saying, we're going to make it super light, super clean, super crisp. And then we just went for this big, um, you know, citra profile. And, you know, we usually don't lean very heavily on citra in any of our IPAs. Um, and, and we're not a huge user actually. Um, but yeah, that, and then I think Eldorado was a really good backup hop for that as well. Um, and so, yeah, so there's really, you know, firmly new school character. And sometimes we'll just get a combination or I'll talk to somebody and it's like, what are you guys hot on right now? And that was just kind of a, a pairing, you know, and we usually like to blend more varieties together, but featuring two hops and a dry hop like that for us can be kind of fun in a small release where we're just going to go and say, Hey, this is what you're getting out of this. Whereas, you know, with hopnosis, I think I was like, let me count them right now. It's like eight varieties. Um, so you got some New Zealand, you got some El Dorado, Idaho 7, Cashmere, Mosaic, you know. So we're kind of rounding everything out there. Um, but yeah, but firmly new school for sure. Um, you know, even though I still, yeah, we still love some Centennial and, you know, even Cascade and IPA, um, you know. So yeah, but um, we're also using Simcoe though. I'm not letting go. I'm yeah. having a hard and, time. <laughs> no, I know. And, you know, for me, Simcoe is kind of that variety that, you know, it's been around for, you know, since before I started home brewing, you know, um, and it was always there, but it's been that bridge hop, um, for me that always brings in some more of that traditional, you know, old school West coast IPA character now, um, where, you know, I, I think Centennial Chinook, you know, we still use actually a decent amount of Chinook as well, um, in our IPAs in general, but not in this beer. Um, and doesn't seem to make it as much into cold IPAs for some reason. Um, but I have given it a try, but, um, but not currently. I think the Chinook that we were getting was like indicative of what relapse was. It was like, for me, it was that Chinook was the star of the show. I mean, it couldn't have been only the Chinook, but man, it just, it stuck out with sore thumb to me. I think that it also was a sign of the times because, you know, it was 2018 and everyone's making very tropical beer and you come out with that kind of a Chinook bomb and it's built in a different way. And it's kind of like painting with the same color that everybody knew but just on a different canvas everyone's like oh wow i like that color i used to like that color what happened you know and <laughs> so i don't know it's it it seems to work but i think that the cold ideas that we're going to be doing now will probably be changing it up and doing something a little different well, you're totally right i think too i keep harkening back to this this time when like armarillo and chinook and centennial seem to have been at like their peak and citrus just still just kind of coming and cascade is probably the number one hop you know, in the country. Um, but you know, this is a time like half acre, the, the, the like the wet hop beers that, that I would cut my teeth on here. And I don't know if they were getting it from Hophead farms or, or wherever, but I mean, those were all Chinook, uh, wet hops, like, you know, dark ales, like it was a beer called sticky fat or even close to here, there's a brewery called, uh, two brothers. And they would release like a, 
a wet hop series during that time. And it was just all focused on Cascade, Chinook, uh, and, and Centennial. Um, we're releasing a beer today called Oregon Cool. If cool. we can show some, some love to the Pacific Northwest and the hops. And it's just, I mean, that profile is Chinook, Centennial, Strata, and CTZ. So we're just trying to evoke, evoke what it, uh, you know, what it feels like when, when we get out there. We're moving on in time here, and I want to make sure we come back to the subject of malt uh, and adjunct, you know, and uh, you know, making malt selections to help complement this, because I know that's a you know a kind of a key foundational piece, and and all of you all have your own you know thoughts about uh, how to use adjunct, you know, the current state of two row and what that means, how you select specific two row for these beers. So I want to talk about that, but first, brewers. Are you looking for the best beer, mead, and cider recipes on the planet? Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal-winning recipes. American Homebrewers Association members have access to nearly 1,400 trusted and tested recipes, plus a Zymergy Magazine subscription, exclusive discounts, live webinars, instruction videos, and more. Plus, sign up for a membership by December 31st, 2023, and select a free brewing book, a $25 value. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org slash cbb pod also when you work with alpha brewing operations you get unwavering commitment to quality innovation and service using the latest in brewing equipment alpha has helped build hundreds of award-winning breweries and other craft beverage businesses now backed with new industry partners alpha brewing operations is offering a wider selection of equipment faster shipping quality ingredients and advanced financial tools with alpha in your corner the only thing missing is you the brewer Let's work together to craft your path to success with Alpha Brewing Operations. Let's come back to that question of uh, of malt, um, and and maybe we start talking about um, you know what that malt parameter is for you, Kevin. You know, as you kicked it out, you know, you, you roughly you know about you know thirty percent adjunct, seventy uh, percent base malt, kind of you know percentages. You obviously have left the door open for rice and corn. You know, within this context, and uh, you know there are brewers that are using both of those things. Um, but talk to me about the kind of you know basics of the I- basic idea behind using adjunct along with uh, you know a two row ba- base malt to to create this kind of light or as J- uh, Jude might say crystalline uh, expression. Now uh, you know within malt it's, itself. I think they like rice and corn are going to like, and I've said this before a lot, but what I'm trying to do is fix modern malts to make them. I don't want this beer to exactly like if you look at like six row brewers taking corn and rice and trying to emulate like a German Ellis or something more of a European lager. Um, that's not exactly what we're trying to do. Although that is what the means to the end is like we are, tr- I am trying to, it, by adding us, us, uh, a separate grain corn or rice, we are adding something that has a lower protein and higher starch and lower fan than modern two row malts. And we're using a modern two-row moss. Now, the other fun thing about modern two-row moss is in, in, um, because so many craft brewers are shooting for like a Pilsner beer, a lot lager beer that they've actually lowered a lot of two-row colors to get that super light color. And you don't really have to, if you're using a lot of adjunct, you can kind of have like a higher color two-row that has less of a dimethyl sulfide precursor. And then once you cut it with the with the adjunct, you're getting more of that light golden, uh, bright yellow lager. Um, now, a lot of modern malts are going for a very low color malt, even though they also have a high Kolbach index 
um, high fan, a lot of agile, a lot of, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of enzyme potential and pretty high protein, he, regardless of the fact that it's been over modified or, or very well modified. So in using both of those and using the adjunct and the, um, and the super pale colored malt, you can get a beer at 15 and 16 Play-Doh look like it's a beer at 11 Play-Doh. Like it, and, and that's something that you just can't do with just a hundred percent malt. If you use a hundred percent malt, you're never going to get it to look like the EBC or the, the love of of that light, light lager. So it's, so it's, it, what's fun about relapse. What's fun about cold IPA is that it's snaky. You look at this beer and like, and your eyes are saying that looks like Budweiser. That looks like Miller Highline for something like that. And then you smell it and it smells like an IPA and you drink it and it drinks like 7%. So that's, that's like the fun trick of cold IPA that I think that a lot of people that sometimes is missed on people is that getting the color and the clarity, right. And the only way you can do that is by using a high adjunct base, um, in my opinion, to get it, to get it done really, 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 you, you know, you want it to be strikingly different in its, in its, uh, in its appearance. How does that express? Yeah. For you guys, Sam. Well, yeah, you know, we've done both approaches and kind of, um, you know, other than, I guess, short of cereal mashing. And I, and I think, you know, that's something that with the adjunct usage that we played around with, you know, we've always used flake products. Um, and then the stronger beers, you know, dextro sugar as well as an adjunct. Um, and, you know, so we did, um, we did a double cold IPA as our kind of like propagator anniversary beer last year. And I was um, kind of conscious of like not cutting the... Um, a, a too high of an adjunct load of, of like maintaining that balance and not have it just be like a little too hot um, because we are also going to be adding dextrose. So I think, you know, we were trying to balance out. So, you know, we were using some rice, some dextrose, um, but not as high of a content of rice as we would do. You know, we'd probably be around 20%, um, like 15, 20 in the single. So I was looking another life where um, in that range and, you know, we're also using an extra pale, um, like super pale Pilsner malt in that. And so like I was saying, like we were just having fun with that this summer. We were like, let's just make super, super pale. I mean, it just, you know, it drinks like you're almost drinking just a light lager, um, except for, you know, it's in up in the sixes and, you know, um, so not too heavy. But yeah, in the double range, we definitely had to to be conscious of like, okay, once you start adding dextrose sugar, it's already having the effect of, of lightening the malt character. So adding too much adjunct on that, I, I didn't want to go too far. Um, and, you know, with hopnosis, uh, we're using a standard two row. And so there is a little more color, like Kevin was saying. And then, you know, I, I do think we have the advantage, you know, large scale, you know, producing that beer on a large uh, German brew house. That's a super efficient steam heated system. It develops almost no color. And I think, um, you know, especially compared to smaller scale craft brewers, um, you know, whether it's direct fire or steam, you're always going to be developing more color. You're going to get more hot side aeration. And so on these larger systems, it's basically a, you know, zero color development compared to some systems. So I think that does um, play into it, you know, and when I have beers from brewers that, you know, are doing, um, especially if, you know, if you're on like a 10 barrel, 15 barrel direct fire system, um, you're just going to be making a different beer. And I think that's probably where adding more adjunct is really going to help you out um, as far as controlling color, um, you know, and, and keeping that body down because you're going to develop more of it. Um, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll add a couple more things. Sometimes a little bit of wheat, sometimes a pinch of carapils, um, you know, just for a little foam, um, you know, but, um, but other than that, yeah, it's super simple. I mean, the idea is that there's nothing with any actual light color going in. You, you still want the beer to be essentially as light as possible. And yeah, when you look at, you know, if I put, you know, a couple like our, you know, higher adjunct version with the uh, all malt version next to each other, 
you you can't tell a difference. So like Kevin was saying, like it's not, you know, they they are slightly different beers. So I'd say like we're kind of riding that line between the super pale end of modern West Coast IPA. And I think that West Coast IPAs um, have all drifted in that direction, especially in California, Southern California um, over the last couple of years. You know, everyone has just been moving paler, paler, paler. Um, so, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I, I still think the adjunct can be really useful and it's not for me, it's also, um, modifying the flavor somewhat. I mean, depending, you know, that like, I don't know, there's, I, I really like the flavor of rice and in those levels, it just, for me, it's like, it adds this kind of round sweetness. Um, but it's, but again, the beers finish out very dry. So it, it's hard to, you know, describe in that context of it. It's not really adding sweetness, but there is a perception there. It might be just lowering some tannin from the malt, you know, you're getting, you know, especially depending on the brew house, if you're getting any huskiness, any excessive tannin content, if you're lowering that by adding adjunct, then you're really rounding out the flavor. It, it comes across as a more pleasant sweetness to me. That's interesting. Jude, uh, yeah. I don't think I could add anything to this conversation that Sam and, and Kevin uh, haven't already touched on. Can I ask a quick, I know we're up against time. Can I ask a quick question to Sam and Kevin about yeast? Absolutely. We, could we you have guys, as much time as you guys want. So, yeah. right, right on. Could you guys kind of articulate when you wrap your head around like what like what the yeast character in cold IP is, whether like it's 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 a present yeast character or absence of yeast character? When you think of what what yeast character plays a role in cold IPA? Can, I don't know, can you kind of articulate that? It's something I'm always curious about what's happening, what's not. We're still fermenting kind of at the, the high end of lager range usually, um, you know, to try to, yeah, suppress the ester to a point where you're just not noticing it at all. Where I think, you know, and I, I've definitely, you know, I've, I've used 3470 all the way up, you know, 65, even letting it get up to about 68 degrees. And, you know, a lot of lager yeasts are perfectly happy there. Um, and the, the esters are still, you know, below what you're going to get with any ale yeast for the most part. Um, you know, I think in, in a cleaner, you know, when you do more of a steam style beer, I think you notice that slightly more. And I think that, you know, the kind of traditional like Anger Steam profiles, like you really are noticing that lager yeast, there is a fruitiness developing because of how that beer is fermented. But in... West Coast Pills Cold IPA, you know, just to, to take that, you know, example, if you're doing it more like that, um, you're, I don't think you notice it. I mean, for me, it's like, like there's something there and 3470, I think the warmer you ferment it, it expresses slightly floral. Um, and yeah, that, that's about the main character, but it, it's always complementary to the hops. I think, you know, the, the main thing that we ever notice, if I am noticing the yeast at all, is sulfur and that's you know retaining a little bit more and so i think the warmer dry hop for us has been key in getting the balance we want there um and yeah definitely you know and that to me you know going back that was the the downfall of a lot of ipl was this kind of you know unharmonious mixture of sulfur content and hop aroma that was happening on, with cold dry hops with longer ferments you know where you had more sulfur and so i think finding that balance is really key yeah, I would also say that like um, um, yeast pitch and uh, aeration level matters a lot. 34, if you are using 34 like we are, um, it has a tendency to throw a lot of banana. And um, especially in like Doppelbach and, and bigger, stronger beers when you are fermenting cold. And being able to get like on, if you're going to ferment really, really cold like that, getting a huge pitch is really important. But if you're not, you don't want to over pitch this beer, you know, because the, you know, to, to get out a lot of these sulfur compounds, you need a lot of scrubbing action to do that. You need some cell um, duplication. 
So if your cells are only duplicating once or twice, you're just not getting that active of a fermentation. It's 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 duplicating. They they, they eat the sugar. They go to bed. Um, you actually kind of want to pitch this more more appropriate, like you would a Chico beer, and um, or pitch it colder and, and let it let it free rise over 24, 48 hours and let's go to go to town. That Wayfinder we had the whole batch tanks. Everything was we had a ten barrel system and twenty barrel tanks. So we would pitch the first turn at like forty nine degrees. And then pitch the second turn at 55 or wherever it was and then let it go free rise up to 65. But we were only pitching, um, we were the first, we'd only pitch yeast on the first day and we'd only pitch 10 barrels worth of yeast because by the time the second day came around, it was at least doubled or or even tripled. Um, And then watching our aeration level, we also only aerated with sterile air. Um, Any lager yeast only got sterile air and never got bottled oxygen. So keeping the PPM down to about 8 PPM on the total air to, make sure our cell duplication wasn't going crazy um but also not <laughs> underperforming too so yeah it's like lager lager yeast is that balance of trying to make sure you pitch an appropriate amount you aerate an appropriate amount and you have an appropriate amount of fermentation so that's kind of always been the juggling act but if, if you ask my opinion on lager brewing is trying to make all those pieces work harmoniously yeah, we do use oxygen, um, but you know we're pretty tightly controlling that, and so we're we are targeting a higher level than you would get with air, but not excessive. And, and there's one thing that I learned, you know, coming to the smaller scale and doing a lot of experimentation here, is that it's incredibly easy to ma- dose massive amounts of oxygen, and um, you know, and so I, I think that's something that yeah, whenever I, I'm you know hanging out with other brewers doing collaborations brews, you know, that's always something to, to look out for. Because I think you can really get your lager fermentations out of whack with um, with too much oxygen, and um, you know you want that growth curve, yeah, to be you know um, in a in a controlled manner, not out of control. But you know it it also you know that makes up for a lot of sins when it comes to you know yeast health and under pitching too. Um, you know it, at least it helps. It's a band aid, um, excessive oxygen. Um, it's not not the optimum way to do it, but I think yeah, you know if you're getting a healthy pitch in there, um, that's not you know. It's not yeah as heavy as a standard lager. Um, you know we shoot for something kind of in the middle. We pitch pretty low for our ales, um, so we're always you know um, looking for a lot of growth out of the ales. So we kind of shoot down the middle between that low ale pitch that we do and you know our, our high lager pitch, and then um, and then give it yeah that you know uh, you know a decent amount you know probably shooting for about you know 15, 16 ppm um, oxygen. Um, so not crazy high like you would if you were using like juice or you know something like that, but um, but definitely higher. Um, and then getting some growth out of it that way. It's interesting because like if one of the things I like to say about it is like you're going to it, using sterile air and lager yeast is, or lager fermentations is traditional because of Reinhaske, but you weren't able to use bottled oxygen. And so it's, it's funny in craft brewing, I think that it's based a lot on ale brewing and home brewing that everybody kind of feels like, oh, bottled oxygen is just ubiquitous in our, in our scene. But if you talk to a lot of old school lager brewers, it is not ubiquitous at all. Like, I don't count on my hands how many people actually use bottled oxygen and some of the bigger lager breweries. They almost all use sterile air because of the Rheinheinskabut and because of tradition, but also because of that. It's a way of saying, well, if this is how much oxygen I'm going to be able to, then I have to adjust my pitch and my everything else, my fermentation. I have to control these other elements. And that's that's why a lot of the other reasons, you know, it's a whole style, you know. So I went in doubt Rheinheinskabut. You know, just stick with the past if you don't know what you're doing. That's what I tell people. That was great. That's one of, uh, that'll be one of my biggest takeaways is I learned another new thing about cold IPA just now. 
<laughs> well, as we uh, let's pull out here, uh, you know, as we finish up um, and just kind of let you know, talk about cold IPA in a, in a theoretical sense. I, I mean, I think there's plenty of arguments out there. And I mean, I think every beer festival I go to, you know, when people have been drinking, we get into some sort of argument over cold IPA. There's there's a, a lot of folks that love to, to make impassioned arguments about these kinds of things. But I think, you know, as we all here agree, um, you know, the, the proof is in the beer itself. And when you taste, you know, a well-made IPA made in this kind of cold IPA style and you see that kind of, um, you know, brightness and directness and, uh, um, you know, that kind of focus and the way that it allows the, these, you know, beautiful, uh, hop characters to, to pop out with this, you know, um, also kind of refinement to it. You know, there, there's something to it that also feels like its own, it, like it, it is its own thing and probably merits its own discussions as its own thing. Certainly, especially in this current context where we now have separate categories for American IPA, West Coast IPA, New Zealand IPA, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we can slice and dice these uh, styles of IPA that tightly to create more space, um, you know, to celebrate the great work that the brewers are doing in those, then we certainly probably have space for cold IPA. Um, you know, thinking about it in that sense, uh, you know, what's your, uh, what's your elevator pitch for cold IPA now? You know, if you were going to make a, you know, a quick, uh, case for it, um, you know, what would that, that be in, in a few sentences, Sam? Well, I think just kind of leaning into the, the cleanliness of it, you know, just focusing on just crystal clear, you know, dry, really light, clean malt flavor, clean hop expression, you know, letting the hops take center stage. Um, and that's the side of, you know, and, and there's a lot of brewers that I talk to now that are, that are using lager yeast to make IPAs that aren't, you know, but they're just not really into going in that hard in that direction. They just, you know, and, and so they just want to be, oh, I'm just making West Coast IPA, whatever. But I think like, you know, there's something to be said for that kind of like that approach that you were saying like, no, like cold, if I'm going to call it cold IPA, it's because I am going for this certain flavor profile and it is that, you know, that kind of extreme Western the West Coast end, you know, um, it's not, it's not just any, it's not just the West Coast IPA, right? Um, it's that specific approach. Um, and I think that, you know, those beers can be really delicious and, you know, I really enjoy them. So, you know, I hope more people kind of find, uh, that that's working for them too. Jude, where's your, what's your elevator pitch for cold IPA? I would say, I think, do you like the, the tightest of tight? hop expressive slammers then you'll love cold ipa it's opened up so many doors it's lowered so many you know barriers and i feel that like it can, it can appeal to someone who's about dogma but at the same time that is like free enough to consider everything and not be so rigid and as a result you start to see things for their the, you know their individual parts and then how you can apply them to what you already know i think so many strides uh and they make possible through cold IPA. It's a crusher. When you want to have cold IPA, there's nothing that you can have like it unless you grab a cold IPA. Kevin, what's your elevator pitch? Um, drinkability, drinkability, and drinkability. I think those are. I mean, when we talk about beer, sale, selling beer, making beer, then I mean, that's always the little purple dragon we're always trying to trace. Is yeah, sure, this beer is cool. Yeah, this is interesting. But do you want two of them? You know, I mean the best beers out there are going to be ones that are repeatable. You know, I mean, you think about the best IPAs, like whether it's too hard to, like we talked about or Pliny or, or any of these ones that have all the national acclaim, 
they're repeatable. People have them again and again, and they keep getting voted in as one of the best IPAs because they're drinkable. And um, I think Cold IPA has something that some other beers that are a little bit more stunt-like um, don't have, and that's that you can have three of them and still you shouldn't have three of them. They're quite strong. But, um, well, depending on your size and depending on how much food you've had. Never mind. Okay. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, they're very drinkable. Uh, they're very shelf-stable. They're more shelf-stable. I mean, they're not shelf-stable. They're more shelf-stable than other products that are hoppy IPA. And um, and people like the marketing. I, I kind of envision, like, when it comes to that marketing thing we were talking about earlier, uh, can you imagine Porter never existing and then somebody comes out with, a like, a black beer right now and says, uh, this is my Porter. Well, why'd you call it a porter? Oh, I know. Doesn't it seem like a porter? You know, like you'd be laughed out of the, you know, the face of it. Like, yeah, that's some of just the a stout. That's just a stout. That's just Kevin. a stout, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. How can you call it that? I'm surprised India Black Ale doesn't get more, you know, crowd for like, how can it be black if it's a pale ale? I don't, it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. So I think that it's just so it on that subject, Kevin. I've got a podcast coming up in a couple of weeks after this uh, with Evan from the Colonel in London, where they make an export India porter because apparently you know porter was actually the most exported beer, um, and it was quite hoppy um, and actually has a lot in common with uh, what we think of as uh, you know hoppy American black ale, Cascadian dark ale, or black IPA. Strangely enough, there's some uh, so anyway. Pay attention for that episode down the road. We'll get into some of those questions in that. Um, I appreciate all of you guys talking with me about cold IPA here on this episode, and I think this is all a great place to bring it to a close. g and Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Available through BSG, Gambrinus Malting combines European-influenced malting practices with the finest barley, wheat, and rye. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. Probrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Don't miss keynote speaker Rob Todd from Allagash Brewing at the 2024 California Craft Beer Summit. Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal winning recipes. And Alpha Brewing Operations has helped build hundreds of award-winning breweries and other craft beverage businesses. If you've enjoyed this episode and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. And hey, if there's a brewer in your life that needs a fantastic gift this holiday season, give a gift subscription. Show them just how much you love them by sharing Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and beerandbrewing.com content with them for the entire year. Um, Kevin, if people want to learn more about uh, Gold Dot, Heater, Allen, and your approach to uh, cold IPA, where do they find you all? Um, HeaterAllen.com at the moment. Uh, we haven't really lost the Gold Dot page yet, so Heater Allen, just check us out there. Awesome. Jude, if people want to learn more about Hop Butcher and your all approach to uh, your all's approach to hoppy beer, where do they find you all? Hotbutcher.com, and we're also at Hot Butcher across all the channels, uh, Twitter, X, uh, Facebook, Instagram. We're pretty responsive, too. Uh, we talk a lot on there. So if you ever want to reach out and holler at us, we'll holler at you. Awesome. Sam, if people want to learn more about what the beers you're making at the Propagator or Firestone Walker in general, where do they find you all? Firestonebeer.com, uh, at Firestone Walker, at Firestone Walker underscore Propagator for some more Propagator-specific stuff. But, um, yeah, you'll be able to get everything there. And I will just say we did a cold black IPA. That's our last release here, so I don't want to, to you know, make any heads explode right now. But uh, <laughs> it 
look for that right now. Cold Black IPA. I, I got to get a hold of that. I got to talk to your people, Sam, and uh, make sure I can try some of that. Um, thanks to all of you guys for talking with me uh, You know about uh, making Cold IPA. It's been, uh, it's been awesome, and I appreciate everyone's perspective on it. Cheers. 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 This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.